Well, you don't have to turn there, but uh, the words will be on the screen, actually. But Romans 8 is a passage you know well, great 8, we, it's referred to. Um, these, these powerful, beautiful words that are grounding our assurance, our confidence in Christ, no matter what we face. And again, we quote this often, Romans 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Powerful words. But it's interesting that the question that begins it is not what will separate us from the love of Christ. It's who, because everything he lists, danger and nakedness and sword and peril and famine, and those those seem to describe uh, not the who's, but the what's that we face in our lives. So why not not say what? Was this a typo that uh, was made here or something? I don't think so. I mean, a couple things. One is when those things come to us, they don't feel inanimate. They don't feel like what's. They feel like who's, and often there's people behind those those realities, but also what Paul is doing in Romans 8 there is he's setting up this contrast with a greater who. There, there, no matter who you have against you, which may come in the form of these what's, you've got a bigger who on your team. Capital letter who. He is greater than any little who that opposes you. I'm not talking about the Grinch who stole Christmas or anything like that here, but God is stronger and, and, and he's not just going to defeat those things for us. No, he's going, the text says, to make us more than conquerors. More than, it's an interesting expression, isn't it? More than conquerors. He, have, you, have you thought about that? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? I think the, the point Paul's making is God doesn't just deliver us from our sufferings. He sometimes does that. But what he does is he actually makes our pain and suffering serve his greater pleasure, purposes. In other words, to be a conqueror means you've, you've just kind of do away with your enemies. But to, but to be more than conquerors means you subjugate your enemies to do your purpose. And this is what God does for us in, in our sufferings. What God, God, this is what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond our, all comparison. He doesn't just say, I'm going to do away with it. He says, I'm going to actually use it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use your weaknesses. I'm going to use your hardships. I'm going to use the persecution. I'm going to use the sting of of hostility and and opposition. And so when what Satan means for evil in our lives, God intends to use for good. And he does. And and, and even attacks uh, that that come to us, they work for us and they work in us to accomplish this greater weight of glory that we experience, that we wouldn't have experienced without them. And so the who of your salvation is greater than the who of your opposition. The God, the, the, and God transformed the opposition into servants of His purpose. Well, this is exactly what we see in this text. Yes, they are these the apostles and are like sheep that are led to the slaughter. They're persecuted. They're imprisoned. They're beaten. They're threatened. They're all for teaching the gospel message. But through Christ, the great shepherd, they're more than conquerors. More than conquerors. They overwhelmingly conquer. That's the scene here. We'll come back to that in, at the end. But our story here begins in, in, in you see the text there, verse 12, in, in Solomon's portico. 
This is where we find the apostles and, and some other believers here in, in the middle of this kind of crazy scene. And so we, we're not sure how much time has elapsed. Remember last week we were looking at Ananias and Sapphira and, and they fall dead at, at Peter's feet because they've lied. They're, they're this, this, uh, deceit and hypocrisy. And, and, and yet the impression we get from verse 12 is there's, there's some time that's elapsed because these things are now happening on a regular, regular basis. It's, there's a pattern here of days, possibly weeks of the apostles going and teaching in this, in this location. Now I love this story. I really do. It has been a joy to, to be looking at that this, this week. And primarily this morning, I just want to tell the story as it's revealed in Scripture. I'll stop. We'll make some application along the way. But it, I, there's not going to be anything real fancy here, some elaborate outline. There will be an outline to just kind of help us tell the story. But that's going to be our focus this morning. And the first thing that we see here, and sort of alliterated, but power in the portico. Power in the portico. And so Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, it was this long covered colonnade that ran along the eastern wall of the temple mount so just inside that outer wall of the temple so outside the eastern wall i don't have pictures for you today sorry but you're looking then across at the mount of olives there and so down the kidron valley and the mount of olives but along that eastern wall it stretched approximately 1200 feet they they estimate so about four football fields was this portico so an incredibly long high ceilings you know i don't know probably 20 30 feet wide and, and, and so it was basically a covered walkway. It could get people out of the weather. So it was this large covered area in the temple grounds. And people would pass through there and people would gather there. And so rabbis would teach people there in Solomon's portico. And so John 10, we find Jesus himself. He's walking through there. And the text actually mention, mentions it was in winter. And winter in Jerusalem can be rainy and can be cold and it's kind of nasty. And so... Uh, they're probably taking shelter, walking under that portico. And, and this is that time. Remember, th- th- there are these people that come to him and they start following him as he's walking through there. And they, they, they're asking Jesus to make it plain whether or not you are the Christ. Make it plain, Jesus. You're speaking in parables. You're speaking in these kind of strange languages. Make it plain. Are you the Christ? And what is Jesus? He does make it plain. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And they picked up stones to kill him. And the authorities made plans to arrest him, but Jesus slipped away. Now it's going to be interesting, in case I forget to make this point later. We're going to come back, and this is this is what Peter and the apostles, the others and these believers are doing. They're going back to the temple after they've been beaten and roughed up. And what are they going to do? They're going to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. That's in the same place. All right, but just imagine you're walking into the temple. You come through that eastern gate, which is where everybody came in, that triple gate there. I think I showed a picture of that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and the first thing, you'd walk into this portico, and eat both directions you'd look, you'd be looking down this enormous colonnade, both sides, and right in front of you, uh, as you look out from under that roof, is this massive temple staring right in your face. And in between you and that temple is the court of Gentiles, which is where they had the markets in Jesus' day, and all of those people exchanging money and selling things in that market. But, th- but that's that's the scene. Now, that doesn't all matter so much, but the main thing that Luke is, is wanting us to understand by giving us this location is this is all happening in public. This is very visible. This isn't, these aren't things that are going on in the kind of corners of Jerusalem, the dark corners in some house. No, this is right in the middle of things. This is in the middle of all the action on the Temple Mount, the center of, of, of uh, Jewish life here, the center of Jewish religion. It's right here. This is where it's happening. 
And so these new believers, they're gathering there with the apostles. And notice the text says, and by the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people. And so this has become the norm. This isn't what we're looking at. It's just not some exception. This is the pattern now. It's a consistent pattern. It's regularly being done. Now, verse 13 is interesting. The text says, none of the rest dared join them. Now, who are the rest? Are these unbelievers? Are these believers? Uh, well, we could spend a lot of time thinking this. I, I would just say, I think that's probably believers that recognize the tense situation that this is. Here are these apostles, and they're preaching the gospel. They're performing these powerful signs, and the crowds are, are curious and interesting, and, and it's right here in the temple area, right under the nose of the Jewish authorities who've already threatened them not to do this ever again. And, and they know that the Jewish leader, leadership, they have the power, they control the temple here. So they can kick people out of the temple. Now, it's difficult for us in our context, but to be kicked out of the temple, that would be, that would be being completely ostracized from society. You, you, people couldn't associate with you or do business with you if you've been banned from the temple. So this is, this is a powerful card that the Sadducees hold here, and they're willing to play it if they need to. And so it's likely some of these new Christians, they're, they're timid, they're afraid. This is, again, they, 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 this would be like, um, I don't know, you, you, we're here as the beginning of Ramadan. This would be like coming to faith out of Islam and then going back and being with a group of Christians who are going to, to evangelize at the mosque during Ramadan. It's kind of that, that level. So you can imagine, so there are some, they're, not, they're sort of on the edge. They're a little uneasy. I think that's the idea. So, so you have some disciples who aren't, don't dare to join them, but then the text says, but the people, the population, they held them in high esteem, regard. Other Jews are listening and they're watching and they're interested and they're impressed by the things that they're hearing and seeing. And as a result, verse 14, more than ever, know that, more than ever, that's saying something. There were 3,000 people who believed on Pentecost and another 2,000, you know, just a little bit later and were baptized. But this is saying more than ever. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. And so this healing ministry, it draws attention to the gospel message that the, that the apostles are preaching. And as a result, this, the, this word spreads and faith abounds and many multitudes are added to the Lord. They're brought into union with Jesus Christ and the church is just growing by leaps and bounds. That's the picture. And Luke gives us some details to show how incredible this power on the, in the portico is, is happening here. And so, again, you see this in verses 15 to 16. We have these details about people being, these sick people being carried out into the streets and, and laid on mats and just, just perchance that the, the shadow of Peter might just pass by. My shadow is not going to do anything, so don't worry about moving up here if you've got a cold today or anything. Uh, that's not going to do anything. But, but this is what's happening. I mean, the Lord is working mightily through Peter. Just, just to come into the shadow of Peter, the people are being instantly healed of diseases they've suffered with their whole lives and of sicknesses. It's incredible. Not just healing of diseases, but liberation from the spiritual torment of these unclean spirits, evil spirits, demons, set free from that bondage and the tormenting. The word is harassed. They were being harassed by these evil spirits and they're set free. These powerful signs powerful wonders. They're all pointing to this freedom and this healing that we can have in Jesus Christ. And so remember, 
the apostles, the apostles they're not the source of this power. It, it comes from their hands, but they, they're, they're, the, they're the means. It's the Spirit working through them as they ministered in the name of Jesus. It's all because of the name of Jesus. That's where the power is. And all of this, you remember, it's this direct answer. We're back to chapter 14. Uh, the, the direct answer to the prayers they prayed when, when the apostles were threatened and told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, and they go back to the church, and the church prays. What do they pray? In response to those threats, they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I mean, what we're reading now, it's his, it's his answer to that prayer. It is. We get a glimpse of the power of God working through these apostles. And we're not living in apostolic times. We're not seeing the types of signs and wonders being performed through, through the apostles because they're not here. But, but the same Spirit, brothers and sisters, is powerfully working today through His Word. He it is. The same boldness can be prayed for. And, and God is pleased to answer that same prayer. We, there are just the stories of grace that are, we could talk about in this room are evidence of this reality. So don't minimize it. So we see incredible power here in, on this porch, and that power is still at work today. It is not diminished. Secondly, second movement in the story. I just put it under the heading, joy in jail. So verse 17, it, it's, it's clear that the Jewish leadership, they see all of this public attention and admiration of the people for the apostles and for their message, that this new community that's, that's emerging there in Jerusalem. They see this as very dangerous to the stability of things in Jewish life. And so, verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. Now, let me pause, try to make this quick, but I think it will be important for today and particularly in the weeks to come. There were, there were these four major groups within Judaism at this time. And so you had the Sadducees. They were the majority party. They were the party of the priesthood. And so they had the most power. They had the most money. They had the most influence. They controlled the temple area. And so they, they ran those things. They cooperated with the Romans, who generally just kind of left them alone as long as they kept things under control, particularly in that temple area. And so that's the Sadducees. You had the Pharisees. They were all about following God's laws. And they they really wanted everybody else in the nation to be faithful to the law as well. And so they, these are, they're, they're a minority group at this time, but, but they still had an important seat at the table. And so you have the Zealots. This, this was a group within Judaism. They hated the Romans, hated them. And so they, they were concentrated up in, remember this van, northeast Galilee, northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and the Golan Heights, and that's where the zealots tended to hang out, and they would come down and wreak havoc and, on, you know, and, and, and kind of do their terroristic acts in, in Roman, uh, little provinces and stuff around Galilee. But they, they were, they were always making plans to drive out the Romans. We want the nation to ourselves again. And, 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 and so they were, they were always making trouble, and the Sadducees, really didn't want anything to do with the zealots because of that. Because their job is to keep things stable so that the Romans don't get upset with them and they can keep their power in Jerusalem. And then you have the Essenes, which don't factor in so much to this story. Uh, the other groups all do. The Essenes, they're the, they're the kind of the most spiritual group. They just want to read their Bibles and they want to pray. And so they're kind of tired of everything else. So they leave the cities. They, by Jesus' time, they've kind of headed to the desert. 
and they are just kind of hiding out there and, and clustered in groups. This is, again, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran community. That's the Essenes. Now, of course, during Jesus' earthly ministry, who's, who does he keep bumping up against during his ministry? Pharisees. I mean, predominantly. They, he has his dust-ups with the Sadducees as well. Sometimes they join forces. Uh, but, but it's mostly the Pharisees. Now, after Christ has ascended to the Father and after the church is growing here, it's the Sadducees who are the ones who will be playing a bigger and more aggressive role in opposing Christ's work. And so there's good reason for this. And Eric alluded to this uh, several weeks ago. He kind of gave some of this background, but I'm reiterating it today. And it can be summed up in a word, and that word is resurrection. A word that means a lot to us that we're going to be cel- we celebrate every Lord's Day, particularly with uh, Resurrection Sunday coming up. But the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the supernatural and, and, and demons. And they believed in the sovereignty of God over things. But the Sadducees, they couldn't stomach the fact that you had these apostles and these other uh, Jewish converts who are, who are the Jewish converts to Christianity who are running around all over the place talking about this Jesus who was crucified and now he's risen again. And these, these, they're saying that they're eyewitnesses to this. They couldn't take this. And so you had this theological component where they, they so uh, uh, objected to the, this, the resurrection and you had this, these power politics at play. And so this, this combined. And so they had all kinds of things to lose here. The Sadducees. If, if they, if they lost, if they lost stability in the temple, for instance, they, this could threaten their control if the Romans became concerned that they couldn't keep order there on the temple. So that's kind of what's going on. I know that's a lot of background. But it's going to be important uh, in this text and in the weeks to come here. And so the high priest and the Sadducees, they're there. And the text says they are filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in public pre- prison. So the apostles, their message, it's become this incredible irritant to, to uh, the Sadducean power. This perceived threat to it even. And so the sense... They sense their grip of control loosening with all of this excitement and all of this commotion happening in the temple through the apostles' ministry and their preaching, and and they just won't have anything to do with that. So the tentacles of jealousy start gripping their hearts, and they got to respond. Listen, this is not a message on jealousy, but, but we know this, don't we? Jealousy will eat you up. It will eat you up, and it's hard to recognize in ourselves because sometimes it disguises itself as as, as zeal, uh, even zeal for God. Um, but but it's, it's jealousy, and it blinds us from reality. And certainly, if there's ever a demonstration of the way that jealousy can blind us from what's real, I mean, these guys are right here in the presence of God's own Son, or, or, and, the, and the message of His Son is being preached, and these apostles are declaring this truth, the greatest thing that could possibly be, be there for the nation, and they reject it completely. They're blinded. So eating with eating up with jealousy, they're they're ticked off. They got to nip this little movement in the bud. They got to squash this thing. So they decide the best thing they can do is make an example out of them. So they arrest them. They put them in public jail, which is just saying it's very visible, very public. They want everybody to that, that has quote high regard, as the text said, for these guys to see these guys in custody and to see them as dangerous criminals. That's how they want them to be treated. And it and it and again. Anyone who sides with them should fear being treated accordingly. That's the deterrent here. So verse 19, though, what happens? But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and broke them out, brought them out and said, 
Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I mean, it's an incredible miracle. But we have, it's just told in really few words. We don't have all the details that our little minds want here. But, and so we don't have them, so I'm not going to create them. Uh, but this supernatural escape enabled by the angel of the Lord. And the angel gives them these very clear instructions from God. Go back into the temple. Keep on proclaiming the gospel. I mean, but, but just what an awesome picture of, of, of God's ultimate authority over human authorities. The powerful Jewish leadership and their threats, this, this jail that's very public and visible and these armed guards as we're going to see, they're all powerless against the sovereign hand of God. It can't be stopped. And listen, this is no less true for us today, brothers and sisters. Same power. Again, God is just as free. He is not unhindered. He is, his cosmic authority is undiminished today. And so listen, that doesn't mean we'll always, you know, get a get out, get out of jail free card like they kind of did here through the angel of the Lord. The apostles will get that a few more times. We're going to see there are other supernatural escapes from jail that, that, that we'll read about. But later, Paul's going to remain in jail for years. Peter and others, they'll escape death at the end of chapter 5 here. Stephen's going to be stoned to death in chapter 7. So this isn't, this isn't like a guarantee that we'll always escape the difficulties and opposition. That's not it. But the God we trust is all-powerful. His hand is, is not thwarted. His plans can't be stopped. That's the encouragement for us. No prison is strong enough to hold someone that God wants released. So note again, the message of the angel, go and stand in the temple again and speak to the people all the words of life, of this life. Now you remember when Jesus was still with his disciples uh, before his death, what did Peter confess? And the question, do you want to go away also? Jesus asked them. This is all these disciples are leaving him and not following him. And what is Peter's response? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Now Peter is charged to keep on preaching about this life that God gives through Jesus Christ. Life that is the greatest gift that the Lord has to give to the greatest need that people have. Life. So he says, go, take your stand, Peter, and tell them about life. And so that brings us to the third movement in the story. Teaching in the temple. Verse 21. And when they heard this, this word from God through the angel, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they waste no time. Now the temple, everything closes down at nighttime. Uh, and so the gates are shut and everything like that. But as soon as the gates open the next morning, as they're preparing for the morning sacrifices, like they go right in and they take their place and they just keep right on telling people, about life in Jesus. And you can imagine the response. Again, you, many of these same people watch them get, get arrested and thrown in jail the night before. And here they are again. What a dramatic picture of the Lord's deliverance. What a powerful illustration to accompany this message that they're teaching about life in Christ. And so, so that's happening. And there's kind of this, this, uh, uh, 
break. And so it's like, meanwhile, back at the ranch here, and verse 21, the second part of verse 21, so the Jewish authorities, the night before, they arrest the apostles, throw them in jail, they go home and they sleep well. Like, all right, good, we've got, we've dealt with that for tonight. We'll reconvene in the morning and figure out what to do with these guys, but at least for now, that threat is removed. And so they're going to assemble, figure out what to do with these troublemakers. But verse 21, and when the high priest came the next morning, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. This is what we call the Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin is kind of the supreme court of, of ancient Israel. There were these 70 men who served on the Sanhedrin plus the high priest. And, and most of them were Sadducees, but there were some powerful Pharisees, as we're going to see in just a moment. But the point in giving these details is to say every available leader, everybody's got to come. We need everyone here. It's that important. They're, the concern over the apostles and their message was so upsetting. Was, the concern was so great that the entire leadership body comes together for this. They wouldn't do that just for anything. So they, and they sent, verse 21, to, have, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. They're perplexed. The grammar there indicates just ongoing perplexity. They're, they, just can't, they just keep on trying to figure out their, their minds are spinning, their wheels are spinning. And how in the world did this happen? Where could they be? What could have, the guards are here and they're trying to make sense of all of this. And they can't. And as they're trying to figure all this out, there's this unidentified messenger that comes to them with a word, a word that they do not want to hear. And it's embarrassing and it's troubling. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, behold, the men whom you put in prison, insult, are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I mean, they, they, the leadership, they'd act so swiftly, they'd act so publicly and so uh, sternly the day before to make sure these men and their message were silenced. And now, rather than being muted behind bars, here they are, back in the temple of all places, teaching in the open the very message that they told them never, ever, ever to talk about again. Now, of course, we... As readers, we know they're doing exactly what the Lord told them to do through the angel. But from the perspective of these Jewish authorities from the Sanhedrin, this is unbelievable disobedience. Inexplicable disobedience because they're supposed to be in jail. All their efforts to shut these guys up have failed. That's the idea. They're, they're seemingly impotent to stop these guys and the spread of this message. And again, we come back to this truth that the that the Jewish leaders haven't learned here, but we just keep seeing it over and over again, is that God can work in ways that just defy explanation. Everything is at his disposal. He, he moves where he wishes. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing can thwart his plans. The undercurrent of the story, again, is nothing will be able to stop the advance of the gospel message. Nothing. Even as persecution intensifies, it's going to fling witnesses out into other farther places. And the message is going to continue to spread. The church is going to continue to be built up. Powerful powerful people can oppose them, can persecute them, can threaten them, can seek to harm them, but never silence the message. And ultimately never destroy the messenger because we're in Christ more than conquerors through him. 
So, of course, the encouragement, you can just imagine as Luke is writing this to Theophilus and to other believers who will be reading this, this treatise of, of Acts, what his intended purpose is in, in, in putting this story in here, what his intended purpose is for the church, to, like us, for us to be hearing this. What an encouragement to be bold, to be active, sharing the message, speaking about Jesus, the life that's in Him. Don't stop. Just keep on going. This, this very new community, this very early baby church, these brand new converts, they, they may be under immense pressure and opposition and persecution, but they are, they are continuing to speak. It has nothing to do with some kind of innate courage and fearlessness that they had. This isn't like, man, these guys were just real men. Like pansies around us today, like we are. That's not it. This isn't a scold. This isn't any, this has everything to do with God's spirit filling them and empowering weak people. That they would boast in their weaknesses that the power of Christ might be seen. That's what this is. It's the answer to the prayer that they prayed in desperation. Lord, we can't do this. We need you to give us boldness that we lack. Fourth, fourth movement here. Is, and this is the main chunk of the story in which we are running out of time to tell. But courage before the council. Courage before the council. Verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. Notice Texas. But not by force. For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So the leadership, they, they're not dummies. They sense, okay, this, is, this isn't looking good here. I mean, these guys were, were preaching boldly. The very thing that we told them not to, do, to say. They're performing these signs in the temple. They're defying our orders. Um, but not in an angry, zealot kind of way. In a compassionate way as they're healing all of these people that are coming and people's lives are being restored. There's all of this admiration that's building around these guys. We need to be careful. There's a fine line we have to walk here of getting these deviants to shut up, but also not stirring up a riot where people are going to come and actually turn against us and stone us to death. Hmm, that's a, that's a delicate balance there. And so they go and find the apostles and they take them in custody as quietly as they possibly can. They're not coming in with guns drawn and, you know, causing a scene. They're just, you know, hey, can we just talk to you down at the station? I mean, something like that is what I imagine. And the apostles, they willingly, they go with him back to the Sanhedrin. Now, once they get behind closed doors, things change. The heat gets turned up really quickly. And the high priest, this leader of the nation of Israel, just lays into them. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest interrogated them, questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. The authorities, or the, the apostles, they have disobeyed very strict and very clear orders. They have, they have completely showed Blatant disregard for the Jewish leadership and what they've instructed them. And the, and the effect of this, of their continued teaching in Jerusalem, is that it's, it's been filled up with, it's like this, Jerusalem's a cup and it's just been filled to the brim with this preaching about Christ. And then he goes on, and you intend to bring this man's, Jesus's, blood upon us. 
Remember, that's the regular refrain of the apostolic teaching. You killed him. You put him to death. Jewish leadership is being held responsible for, for the crucifixion of Christ. And so calmly and courageously, the apostles respond. I think Peter is kind of speaking as the spokesperson for the rest, and he gives this very short, very simple, and at this point, very predictable response. See it in verse 29. We, we know these words. We must obey God rather than men. This is the same. His position hasn't changed since chapter 4. And then he, then he accepts the charge from the high priest that he's blaming the Jewish leadership for Jesus' death. And he says, verse 30, the God of our fathers. You know, they're still identifying with the Jewish people and with the Jewish faith here. The God of, of our fathers. They're, 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 they're declaring nothing other than what God promised long ago. They're, they're declaring nothing other than that when they're preaching Jesus. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, as preeminent ruler, the one who shares authority with God and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This isn't angry Peter, you know, lashing out in some, you know, defiance like a, like a, like one of those zealots living up in the Golan Heights and just ready to, 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 to fight here. This is Peter saying, instead of our message being a threat to the nation as you're treating it, it is this opportunity for national blessing like you couldn't believe. Jesus' exaltation means that the blood of Christ need not remain on your heads. Repentance and forgiveness are offered to you through faith in Jesus Christ. You can, your guilt can be forgiven. This is the appeal. He's bleeding the gospel with these men. I mean, this is what the gospel message is, brothers and sisters. And if you're here as a guest, it's a message about forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's, it's that we can be forgiven of our sins that we all are born into by faith in Christ alone. Through, the, through all that he's provided through his death and his resurrection. That's what we're going to celebrate at the table. This is the message we preach to one another. It's the gospel's not about morals and ethics and do this and don't do that and, you know, uh, just be better, lead a better life, turn over a new leaf. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message of pardon and redemption of guilty sinners because of what Christ has accomplished. That's what he's preaching here. That's what he's saying to these men. He's pleading to them. He goes on verse 32, and we are witnesses of these things. And create this. We're just telling you what we've witnessed. And so is the Holy Spirit. You, this is God's Spirit is testifying to these things. Whom God has given to those who obey Him. So this is courageous but compassionate response. But it's not appreciated by these proud and very jealous Officials, verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. They were enraged. It literally means they were sawn through. They were split open in rage. What for? Why are, so, why are they so furious that they want to kill these guys? What had they done? Were they murderers? Were they child molesters? Were they, you know, did they embezzle funds from the Jewish authorities, steal out of the temple treasuries? Did they, were they insurrectionists? Were they calling on people across the land, across the city to come together and form this militia and take up arms against them? No. 
What horrific deed had the apostles done to bring such murderous rage? Do you think about this? Does it seem disproportionate response here? What are they doing? They're teaching and preaching that salvation is in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ. Now, again, it seems irrational. Something over the top here that they want to kill these guys. Now, you get the idea here, I think, that there's, this is more than the hatred of natural man. There, there is something supernatural behind this. There's something demonic behind this. Behind their rage lies the animosity and the hatred and the vilification, I think, of Satan himself. I mean, Jesus, remember you see working out here what Jesus said when he was, took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And, and, he, and he said there, I will build my church. It's after Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, I will build my church. I'll build them right here, right here in the, in the side of the very gates of hell. And they will not prevail. And here are the forces of darkness arrayed now against Christ and his message and against his followers. And, and again, I just say, I know we read this. Wow, this is so dramatic back then. I'm glad we don't live in that day. No, don't for a second think that the enemy is less active or less incensed by the spread of the gospel today than he was back then. But also don't think that he's gained any advantage over the Lord over this last 2,000 years. God is still bigger. And so, well, if it weren't for the Lord's intervention, you can see the apostles, they would have been killed right there on the spot. All the apostles gone. Right here. How did the Lord step in? Well, he did it through the calming voice of this respected Pharisee, this leading rabbi in the Sanhedrin from that minority party of the Pharisees. And so God uses unbelieving Gamaliel, that's his name, to temporarily diffuse the, this very explosive, volatile situation. So verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And so he stands up and he sends the apostles out uh, so that he can speak very frankly to the rest of the folks that are gathered there. And so he's this very respected, very distinguished theologian and teacher at that time. He's the only rabbi that's named in the book of Acts. He's one of just a few rabbis that's mentioned in later Jewish writings from this period. In the Mishnah, it, let me just give you a, an example. We read in the Mishnah that, that when he died, when Gamaliel died, quote, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. So you can see how respected this man was. He was a keeper of the law. He was... He was the, the standard. Now, here's a question. How in the world do we know what happened when the apostles were sent out of the room and these things are happening behind closed doors? How do we know this? How is this given? Did the Spirit, maybe the Spirit just gave this to Luke, possibly. But how do we know what's recorded in verses 35 to 39 when all the apostles are out? Well, I don't know for certain. There are several commentators that I've that, that mention a possibility that I think is very interesting and it may be very likely. Because what else is Gamaliel known for? Saul. Yeah, that's it. he was Saul's primary teacher. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. He, was, he had the rare privilege of being one of Gamaliel's prized chosen students. This would be like Coach K being your personal basketball coach or something like that. Uh, sorry, you Duke fans. But... Um, it's very possible that Saul, the protege of this esteemed Gamaliel, is, who is his mentor, is there. 
he might be in the room. And if nothing else, he would have certainly had conversations with Gamaliel after this as, as just kind of as things are shared about what went on and, and how, how, what did you tell him and all those kinds of things. And so I think it was probably Paul later told Luke what happened behind those closed doors. All right, that's side trail that I didn't need to go down. Verse 35. So Gamaliel sends the apostles out and he says to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. And then he gives this, so he's saying, slow down, don't react out of rage here. Cautious. And then he gives this history lesson and, and, and to support his warning. And so he talks about these two people, these two rebel movements, Theudas and Judas the Galilean, these two guys, and we don't need to know all of the details. We don't know much about one, and we know more about the other. But regardless, what we need to know is right here. And so these guys, they were zealots. They formed this band of freedom fighters, which were essentially terrorists. You know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. But they, they formed this group of armed soldiers to, to, to come after Rome. And what happened? They were opposed. The leader was killed. The, the, the followers dispersed, and the movement came to nothing. And so he, he gives these two examples just to say, hey, there's a pattern here. There's a pattern here. And then, he, and then he connects it and applies it. So he says, verse 38, so in the present case, now I think it's interesting that the comparison is made between these militaristic in, insurrectionists and these, these men who are simply in the temple talking and healing people and setting people free who've been oppressed by diseases and and you know, evil spirits their whole lives and bringing compassion into the temple. But I don't know, that, that comparison doesn't make sense to me. But he says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. If, for if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail in the key verse. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's definitely some common grace here in Gamaliel's advice there. And, and of course, I hope you see this kind of logic isn't always appropriate. So don't think like, okay, the, my, my decisional grid now is going to be just leave everything alone and, you know, just, just wait and see what happens. That's, that doesn't work for everything. All problems. This is not how we function as elders, you know. Hmm, let's just, just kind of try some stuff, throw some stuff out there and see what happens. And if it, people like it, then it must be from God. If not, you know, that, that just doesn't work. There are lots of evil things in the world that God in, in his mysterious providence allows to go on and on. And there are some good and wonderful things that fizzle and just die and go to nothing. So don't take this to that extreme. But his advice is, is common sense and the Lord uses it. And it's persuasive. And they agree with him, reluctantly probably, but they, they take his instruction to heart somewhat. Because, you know, he says, keep away from them, leave them alone. They don't quite do that. Verse 40, they call them back in. And what do they do? They beat them. And they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So it's not exactly leave them alone. And then they follow Gamaliel's vice and let them go. So but instead of executing them right there, all of them, they, they release them after a serious beating and a threatening warning. And so Paul I think probably this is the 39 lashes, the 40 minus 1 that Paul talks about. He received five times. That's, that was the standard kind of punishment. That was the maximum punishment that you could inflict on somebody. And the thought was you can inflict the most pain without killing them. So they would have been beaten with these, this whip, with this leather straps and these pieces of bone and, and fragments of metal that would be kind of tied on the end of that whip. And so it wouldn't just be like getting welts as you get 
as you get whipped, but you would have your flesh actually torn away by these little fragments. It was brutal. So painful. It, 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 sometimes it exposed organs because it, it, was so, it was so brutal. You would have extreme blood loss. So, so this is what's going on. Uh, and, and all of this, what? For preaching in the name of Jesus. So their hope is that by intensifying the punishment, not just threatening them there now, but actually turning it up and beating them, this will be a, a greater determinant. They're not going to be able to hide these wounds. They're going to walk out of there, and everybody's going to know that they've just been, you know, just slashed by, by these authorities and the, as a deterrent to everybody else. They are, there would be a trail of blood. You could follow. You could know where they walk through the streets by following the, the blood behind them. I mean, it's serious. And then the last, last move, real quick. Speaking in the streets. This is the conclusion here of the story. Well, not the conclusion, but the end of where we're at today. Each lash just seemed to strengthen their resolve to just keep on obeying the Lord. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, that's, that's powerful in our context it was unheard of in the original context. It was this strongly shame-honor-oriented society that they lived in. That to be dishonored like this would be considered to be considered utterly shameful. This is an oxymoron. Worthy, kind of worthy to suffer dishonor. A dishonor that is a cause for joy. They beat them to produce shame. That was why they were beaten. Yes, physical, the physical pain was part of it. That was part of the deterrent. But in that context, honestly, the shame was the greater deterrent. Nobody would want to, to suffer that kind of shame. The hope is that the shame will, will stop them from preaching anymore and will discourage other people from listening to them, from associating with them. But from the apostles' perspective, this is just a source of honor. It's great honor. It's a cause for rejoicing. And what transforms their pain into joy, their disgrace into glory, it's the name for which they're suffering. It's the name of Jesus. The name the Sanhedrin wants to erase completely from their lips, completely from history. And verse 42, And every day, all the time, in the temple, and from house to house, everywhere, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. I'd say their plans backfire. They keep right on making that same trek right back into the temple. Very public ways. And they continue filling up the city of Jerusalem with the gospel message from house to house. What drives them to do that? It leads them to, to, to beatings and prisons and death and just to walk boldly facing that. They're overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. Their hearts and souls are consumed by, by the love of Christ. They're, they come to understand that their sins, though, they're, though they be as crimson, they're, they're washed white as snow. This is what they're going to use. You read the letters that they're going to write. This is what they come back to over and over and over again. So these men, they're, they're not so concerned about the comforts of this world anymore. It's not that they don't feel it, that they're you know, detached from the realities of their pain. That's not it. But they know they have a better city that's to come whose, whose maker and builder is God. They know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
And so because of this, they don't have to be taught to evangelize. They don't need to be you know, taught some class and given some little script and some method or anything like that. They're just the love of Christ compels them. And it drives them to, from, to the temple from house to house. Does, that, does the grace and the power of God grip your life? I, I beg the Lord to give me, to give us just a measure, a measure of the passion that drove these early followers of Jesus to live out and out for the Lord like this. I don't even know what it would look like in our context, to be honest. May He shake us from our obsession with comfort and with our preoccupation with ourselves, seeing that the most important thing in this world is to be known by Christ and to make Him known to others. We get this courage, again, not by looking in ourselves it's not by denying the reality and the pain and dif- of difficulty, the sting of rejection, the seriousness of threats. It's by looking to Jesus. And this is, again, I come back to Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall any of these things, distress, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, we're, we're, we're being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All these things that might oppose us, the, they, they, they can affect our situation. And I don't minimize that. They can affect the circumstances, the real difficulties of life, but they can't touch who we are. They can't touch our identity. That's what I think the, the, the apostles got. We are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Your, your life isn't defined by, defined by your circumstances or your situation. Your life is defined by who you are in Christ. Do you feel like a sheep that's led to the slaughter? Paul calls you more than a conqueror. Do you feel like darkness is your only friend? Paul says, not even death itself can harm you. God's purpose is unchangeable. His, his power is unchallengeable. His love is unconditional. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? It's easy to say these things. It's easy to affirm these things. But we confess, Lord, it's hard to believe them. And so we pray for the hate of your spirit. Uh, the full implications of, of embracing this and, and living in light of these realities is, is hard for us to even uh, comprehend. But give us a measure of it, Lord, by your, by your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name.